much if not all of the history of the book of Jonah, you know. Certainly we have seen a good bit of it already. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord and had experienced some success previously, according to the book of the Kings, in uh, proclaiming the word of truth. He's called a second time, not to go to his own people, but now to go to a foreign place, a foreign nation, um, a pagan nation, to Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, and there to preach. He reacts negatively. He runs from the Lord, and the Lord sends a wind. He sends a storm, and the storm is about to devour the ship to which Jonah has uh, fled and uh, is thrown overboard uh, once he acknowledges and admits that all of this is his fault. God prepares a great fish. The fish swallows Jonah and Jonah begins to pray. And it's interesting that we notice that Jonah doesn't pray. Certainly as he flees from his home and as he finds a ship and he goes down into the bottom of the ship and the storm arrives. Through all of that, there's no indication that Jonah prays at all until he's cast into the belly of the fish. And there he cries out, and that's chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord. The Lord delivers him and now calls him a second time to go to Nineveh. Tom Lyon, in a, in a sermon on this particular passage of Scripture, once said that there are four miracles in this book. And uh, perhaps we ought to say four uh, up to this point because I think there's at least one other later. But he's right when he says there are four miracles in the book. Changing the weather changing a fish, changing a city, and changing Jonah. And then he says this, but these are not equal. In other words, what is the greatest of these? Not the storm, not the fish, and we've said that before, that this really is not an account about a great fish. It's more of an account of what God does and what God does with Jonah and what God does with the city of Nineveh. Changes a city, but he changes Jonah. And we come to that in the passage that is before us this morning in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4. Of course, eventually God changes the city, but we're not there yet. In order to change the city of Nineveh, he must change the heart and the direction of his servant because it is his servant who will preach to the city and bring about a form of revival. At the moment, we have passed through a period of of retrograde, of distance, of remoteness, In fact, Jonah has been brought face to face with death or the potential of death and once dead or almost dead, now 
alive. And so he's restored, but he's restored in what way? Well, he's restored in the sense in the sense that he must go back to the beginning and uh, to repent and then to set his sights on Nineveh again because that was God's calling for him. He's personally restored to favor. He's placed once again in office, in office as a prophet. And in this sense, the story begins all over again. And it says something to us about the nature and the character of repentance, that when we repent, we don't just start again in a new place, but need to return to where we had been before and to repent of what got us to that place originally. And even with all of that, obedience is not wholehearted. Chapter 4 sees Jonah fall again, or at least move into retrograde once again, telling us something about our humanity and the effects of sin upon us that we never achieve the element or we never achieve the level of perfection. One writer has put where we are in these words. By paralleling here the book's opening remarks, almost word for word, as we'll see in a moment, the author skillfully conveys the idea that Jonah is being offered a new beginning. In spite of his earlier refusal, he has a fresh opportunity to fulfill the divine commission, that is to fulfill what God had originally called him to do. He goes back to the beginning. Someone else wrote, the first noteworthy fact about this revival, revival in Nineveh, is that it began with God's call to just one man, Jonah. And even that was after he had apparently disqualified himself from any future service. Or another author, quite simply, Jonah has brought back to his point, or Jonah is brought back, or has been brought back, to his point of origin. He is now a new man, a new creature. And so we meet not only Jonah, but in all of this, we truly encounter God of the second chance. God of the second chance. Well, there are several things that we want to observe uh, this morning. And uh, first is, in verses 1 and 2, what we have called, or what I've called, the reappearance of God's call. The commission is issued again. And the word of Jehovah came unto Jonah the second time. 
And here is the word of the Lord. We're actually given the word of the Lord, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. God addresses Jonah a second time. Not everybody gets a second chance. And we ought not to count on it as if we can behave like Jonah and there'll always be an opportunity to repent. There is a, an account of a prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13 who was told by God not to eat or drink in a particular place. He chooses to do so and he's ultimately devoured by a lion. He doesn't get a second chance. But Jonah is given a second chance. Not because of any merit on his part, but rather because of the grace of God. Because of the patience of the Lord. Because of the greatness of the Lord's kindness. And here's the significance then of this call a second time. The Lord is insistent. He won't let Jonah go. And here is something that is significant, that it's the same calling a second time. Now there is one difference. And some have said, well, really doesn't make any difference, but I think that there is that the text is, is more nuanced than some might conclude. When God initiates the call in chapter 1 and verse 1, He calls upon Jonah to cry out to the Lord or to proclaim or to preach to the Lord, or excuse me, or to preach against the city because its great sin has come up before the Lord. And so cry against it, preach against it, proclaim against the city. And it's a message of of judgment. But here, if you'll notice the language, it's cry or preach or proclaim to the city. Furthermore, it's more specific. In chapter 1 and verse 1, there's the call to Jonah to go and proclaim against it because of its great sin. But now the very words are given to Jonah. Preach unto it the preaching that I tell you. Cry unto it that which I tell you to cry, to preach, to proclaim. He's now given the very words to speak. There's a difference. I think there's something significant here. In fact, one writer puts it this way, the subtle change in the wording of Jonah's call is perhaps intended to prepare the reader for the unexpected consequences of his mission. Cry against it, now cry to it. 
But again, what is most significant is the words that I give you. Jonah's not left to himself. The message is not his own. The message comes from God. And that has significant consequences. There is no place here for his personal views, his personal reactions, or even his personal reflections on what has happened or what is about to happen. I'll say something more about this again just in a moment. Jonah is not empowered um, to uh, stretch what it is that he's been given to say. He's not permitted to extend in one way or the other the very words that God has given to you. And again, no personal reflections. I think it was Tom Lyon who also said on one occasion, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he said, but he said um, that Jonah had the best story to tell. But he didn't tell it. I came out of a background when I came to faith in, uh, in Christ, was in a context, a kind of fundamental context for some years. And there were some ministers who seemingly could not preach if they did not, were not able to refer to themselves. Some of us used to call it autobiographical preaching. They really were preaching about themselves or their own experiences. But Jonah, notice Jonah doesn't do that. Or Jonah's not given license to do that. And there's no record that he did it. Here is the generosity of God. Here is Jonah going with a message. Arise and go. And Jonah, as we'll see in a moment, gets up and he goes. There's a sense of urgency here. There is particularity. He's to go to a particular place, to a particular city. And so here's the reappearance of God's call to Jonah, nuanced from the original, but essentially and basically the same message. Now secondly, and I've begun to hint at this already, notice Jonah's compliance. His compliance with God's call, his submission. In a sense, his resilience. He does the most difficult of things. Notice in verse 3 that his response is marked by immediacy. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of Jehovah. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. His response was marked by immediacy. 
Here's the ascendancy of, of faith. He arose and he went. He made no objections. And he surely would have had them. Um, he had them before. Why wouldn't he continue to have them? But he made no objections. It was a long trip. The trip would have been marked by meeting with other hostile peoples. And certainly Nineveh would have been hostile. There's no reason to believe he knew the language. And the message that he was to give would not appear as a friendly message from a good friend of the city, though it would have been. And so he wasn't fit. He wasn't fit linguistically, culturally, certainly was not fit spiritually, except for this recent repentance. And he wasn't he wasn't fit sympathetically. That's why he ran away in the first place. Here was a compliance and obedience that was marked by great difficulty. Nineveh was probably something like 500 miles away. Now we'll come to this in a moment. It says a three days journey that probably has reference to Jonah's travel within the city, but it could have taken him a month or more just to get to Nineveh. It was costly. Again, notice that he went according to the word of Jehovah. Here was a compliance that was marked by conformity without alteration or adaptation. He didn't give to them what he thought it would be best for them to hear. And it was a great city. Literally the text says a great city unto God. What does that mean? That it was a great city unto God. Well, it may have meant that it was great as to its size. Some have suggested that. The magnitude of the task. In Genesis chapter 10, Nineveh is mentioned and a number of other unknown cities are mentioned in the context. And some believe that those were suburbs to the city of Nineveh. It was an exceedingly great city. Some have suggested it was not just greatest to size, but greatest to substance. It was a major city. It would eventually become a royal city. And so it would be great as to its significance. And there, have been, there has been that view. If we could just reach the major cities of the world, we'll eventually reach the world. But why this particular major city? city. Some have suggested it was great unto God because it was great in its sin. Others have said that it was great as to its false spirituality and God was about to challenge the polytheistic nature of the city. But I think it's simpler to suggest that it's merely great in the eyes of God 
in the sense that it's great to God because God has a message for it. And that's what makes it great. Not because of its size, not because of its political influence, not because of any other reason, or let's reach the big cities first and then we can work on the countryside. But it's great because God has a message for it. It fits with the the context. And so Jonah is compliant. Or as one writer has said, he's compliant as those other servants of the Lord are compliant. The wind, the sea, and the fish. And again, the benefit or the power of divine grace and the benefit of affliction in being the vehicle of divine grace. And so here is Jonah obeying the Lord, obeying the word of the Lord, using the very words of the Lord because God has a message for this city. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Revival is necessary and we must pray for it. But evangelism is the divine command command, and we must be obedient to it. Or as Hugh Martin wrote, When God hath spoken, it is enough. You are no more faithless but believing. Now notice in verse 4 the performance of God's call. It's, it's implementation. Verse 4 again reads, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's the message that Jonah was given and performs or proclaims that message obediently. Now notice again what we can say about Jonah's performance. It's marked by obedience. He begins and he does what God has called him to do. And we see that reinforced here in verse 4 with the performance of God's call. Notice how Jonah performs what God has called him to do. First of all, it was marked by immediacy. We've already seen that in verse 3. It began the first day. Either he marched into the city and began the first day to preach, or he went a day's journey but in, and then began to preach, but in any event... He began to serve God in this way immediately. Either way, he began his work without delay. It was not marked by secrecy, but it was marked vocally and vigorously in proclaiming the exact word that God had given to him. Secondly, notice it was marked by simplicity, clarity, and brevity. 
It was not marked by embellishment. It was not marked by oratorical skill. In fact, the message is just five words in Hebrew. Here's Jonah's ministry. Thirdly, it was marked by honesty, by urgency, the threat of judgment. And the threat of judgment was not avoided in order to somehow placate the sensitivities of these pagan people and win them by his kindness. Not that we ought to be unkind. But here's a message that was simple, clear, brief, and marked by honesty. Forty days and the city will be destroyed. And he didn't avoid it. He's all alone. As far as we can tell, as far as we know from the text, there's no companion, there's nobody with him. Fourthly, it was marked by continuity or strategy. It appears from the language here that what Jonah did was, as it refers to the city and the size of the city, the three days journey and all of the rest, that it appears as what he may have done was crisscrossed the city in the form of a grid in order that he might reach the city in its entirety. He visited, the point is, he visited every part of the city, however you might understand the text. He was thorough, including the suburbs of the city. The entire city knew of Jonah and of the message that was being proclaimed. And fifthly, it was marked by authority. Even though Jonah was doing the preaching, it was the word of the Lord. It was the word of the living God that had come to him and he was now rehearsing it or speaking it. Again, notice it's not his preferences, his ideas, his notions, or even his testimony. But it was marked by the ministry of the Word. That was the instrument that Jonah used. He must preach. And he must preach the Word of God. Cited this earlier, but Tom Lyon in a sermon on the text says, No one ever had a better story to tell, but he did not tell it. Matthew Henry said, given or considering this nuance that I mentioned earlier, preaching against the city and preaching to the city, Matthew Henry said, what is preached to us, if we do not give ear to it, will prove to be against us. If we do not listen to what is preached to us, it will prove to be against us. Or again, someone contrasting so much of modern preaching 
with Jonah's preaching. He was not sent to congratulate their attainments, improve their self-image, empower their options, relieve their tensions, console their misgivings, heal their diseases, promote their prosperity, soothe their consciences, or brighten their future. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Now sixthly, notice that his message was marked by necessity. It was marked by relevance. It's, it's, it's a common sort of approach to preaching. We need to be relevant in our preaching. And so all of the things that I mentioned and cited just moments ago is how preaching is supposedly relevant. It needs to meet me where I am. It needs to meet my particular felt needs. But there's nothing more relevant than to say to people, unless you believe, you will perish. There's absolutely nothing more relevant. You can preach prosperity sermons. You can can preach sociological sermons. You can preach counseling. So you can do all kinds of things and say, that's really relevant. But there's nothing more relevant in the context of the church and the message that God has given to the church, to His people, and to His servants. There's nothing more relevant than law and gospel. So here is a message that was marked by gravity, by necessity, and ultimately by repentance. Now, we'll come to that, but we can't get ahead of ourselves. We need to take seriously what it is that Jonah is preaching and that the people are compelled to hear about the justice of God and the judgment of God. Nothing more relevant than what Jonah is called upon to preach. Seventhly, it was marked by theology. Biblical theology. In what sense? Well, of course, in the sense of judgment and the like. But notice that Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why 40 days? Well, it was the message that God gave to him. But what's, what's significant about the number 40? Well, the number 40 has great significance in the Bible. Number of things. 40 days is associated with rain before the flood. 40 days is associated with the appearance of angelic messengers in Genesis chapter 19. Forty days is associated with Moses on the mount. Forty years is associated with the life of Moses in that his life can be divided into three increments of forty years. Forty days is associated with Elijah's journey to Horeb. 
It's associated with the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Forty days is associated with Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. And 40 days is associated with the appearances of Jesus before the ascension. So 40 is important. 40 is significant. It's not a number that Jonah picked out of a hat or that God, apparently, that God just used randomly. But significant events happen in the context of 40. And much of it has to do with law and judgment. Now, eighthly, here is a response that may also be marked by irony. How soon? Well, in verse 4, the text says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Another way to translate it is overturn, overthrow and overturn. But it's also the common word used for turn, just to turn, to turn from one thing to another. It's used again in the context of destruction, overturning Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's also used in a passage like 1 Kings chapter 22 where the driver of a chariot turns it around. It doesn't overturn, it just turns it in the opposite direction. Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23 for the transformation or the turning of one's appearance from one thing to another. And so it's quite possible here that there's actually a hint of the turning of Nineveh by way of repentance. In any event, Jonah knew how to read the room. He knew what the city needed to hear. To preach them to repentance, which we discover actually heard, uh, actually discover. And again, if there's irony packed into this text, as one writer has said, with these different connotations the use of, of the use of the word here, it's hardly accidental. Although Nineveh was not overturned, it did experience a turnaround. So Jonah preaches, and he's obedient to his preaching And God blessed it, as we'll come to see in future sermons. Well, I want to leave you with some final thoughts and some concluding remarks. First of all, notice that it is compassionate to warn people 
of the coming judgment. We sometimes hear that judgment was a part of the Old Testament and grace is a part of the New Testament and it's just unkind to approach gospel preaching this way. But, but here is compassion. Here is God's compassion. Here is the compassion of the servant of the Lord that the people might turn before God overturns them in judgment. As Sinclair Ferguson wrote, we have a story to tell to the nations. Our story has greater potential for helping a troubled world than all the proposals of the politicians of all the nations. Repent or you perish. And it's a kind thing to say that to people. And so don't let anyone tell you that you're not marked by kindness. That you're not marked by by graciousness. By saying to someone, look, you're standing on dangerous ground. That if you don't repent, you'll perish. If you don't turn to the Lord, there is no mercy for you. That's a kind thing to say. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing. Secondly, notice from the text that God is a God of forgiveness. God doesn't hold grudges the way we do. Um, Things that are done to us are remembered forever. Things that we have done are remembered by others forever. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to get beyond holding a grudge, but God isn't like that. Look how he treats Jonah, even in the context of the way Jonah had treated him and his calling. Thirdly, from the text, notice this, that repentance requires repetition. True repentance means you have to go back to the beginning. You can't just sweep your actions under the rug and say, well, let's just, let's just move forward. With God, that's not possible. You have to go back to the beginning, that is to repent a change of mind and a change of heart about that which brought you to the place where you are. In a world of change, some things do not change. And we'll see this subsequently in terms of the character of God. Matthew Henry wrote, The Word of God is an unalterable thing and will not be made to bend to the humors of its preachers or its hearers. God doesn't bend the rules. Sinclair Ferguson put it a little bit differently when he said, instead of preaching exclusively against the city, Jonah's very presence was a message of hope to 
the city. And Jonah didn't need any more confirming revelation. What he needed was the boldness to preach the word. And so God makes use of him, demonstrating that God was now at peace with him. So here's a message of judgment. Perhaps embedded in this judgment is the hint of coming grace and mercy and the turning of the city. But we need to take seriously and to deal seriously with this whole message of divine judgment and the telling of people that in fact if they do not repent they will perish. Let me put it this way. We do not need further proof that there is a judgment to come. People reject it, make light of it, can't possibly be true. But if you know your Bible, you do not need any further proof of the coming judgment. You have it in the justice that was served by Jesus who lived, died, and remained in the grave for three days and rose again for sinners. What is that but an act of judgment? Of God laying upon His own Son the sins of His people. There's the proof that God is a God of justice. That God judges the guilty. Not that Christ was guilty Himself, but rather He took our guiltiness upon Himself in that great exchange. Justification. He becomes the great sinner. Not that He actually acts out in sin, but He becomes the great sinner in that it was transferred to Him and His righteousness transferred to us. And therefore He died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And so here is the greatest proof of all. And that greatest proof of all is in the Gospel. And so here is a call to my hearers as I've read this text and preached this text, a call to repent and to turn to the Lord and to believe on the one who came to live and to die for the likes of us. Let us pray.